Jim Dunn was an itinerant preacher. And uh, his children were old and retired. And so he and his wife Gladys traveled all over preaching everywhere. And occasionally he'd be invited to a church to do pastoral uh, pulpit supply for a pastor who was away for the weekend. And on this one occasion he did that. And uh, after he was through speaking, uh, his wife Gladys turned to the lady who was sitting next to her all evening and her all morning and said to her, uh, you know, I, we haven't met. My name is Gladys Dunn. And the lady said, you're glad he's done. We're all glad he's done. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes this public speaking is harder on the spouses than it is on the speaker. So if you see Martha this morning, be nice to her. It's not her fault. It's all mine. I've been asked to speak on heritage. I guess when the topic is heritage, you look for the oldest guy you can find and uh, ask him to do what he can with the subject. So I want to talk about our heritage. It shapes who we are. I want to refer you to two scriptures this morning, one in Proverbs 22:28, where it says, do not remove the ancient landmark from your fathers have set. And the second passage is from 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, where you read this. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwell fir dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. Our heritage is what we have received from our past, from our parents and grandparents and maybe even great-grandparents, from the community in which we've lived. And the second part of heritage is in many ways more important because it's that which we are now shaping which we hope to pass on to those that, who come behind us, whether it be our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, or our congregation. Lives will be enriched to the extent that we have received and pass on to others a rich, rich heritage. I want all of us to think seriously about the heritage we have received and the heritage we are passing on. For a few moments this morning, let me examine our heritage in four areas that affect our lives. And the first of these is our cultural heritage. Normally, I probably wouldn't spend a whole lot of time on this, but since it's Stampede Week and the Stampede is really about remembering our culture and from whence we have come, uh, I thought I'd spend a few moments on that. The Canadian prairies, particularly Alberta, revolves around such symbols as the horse. And it couldn't be a better week to talk about the horse. We have horses everywhere in Calgary this week. We've even got them on the stage and out in the atrium and the horses are everywhere. I had my time with my own horse. When I was six years old, I had to go two and a half miles to school in the country. 
and Nellie and I went to the school every morning, but neither one of us wanted to go there very badly. And so uh, I spent a lot of time with Nellie in the ditch uh, where she ate grass and I cried. <laughs> and I'd get to school any time between 9 and 10.30. And it was so frequent that uh, I got the title at six years of age, Ms. the late Mr. Elhard. We always got home on time, though, because when we were going home, she trotted all the way until we got about five or six hundred yards from the farmyard. She would take off and gallop, and when she did that, and I wasn't prepared for it, I'd slide off the back, and uh, she'd get home before I did. The Scal Calgary Stampede has played a major role in preserving our rural cultural heritage. It takes us back to our roots. You know, many of us in this church, we grew up in the Depression. We had no money. We raised our own vegetables. We had our own meat. We took grain to, the, to town and had it ground into flour and baked our own bread. Except on Saturday night, we'd always go to town. That, we'd have a a bath in a galvanized tub, and away we went to town. And everybody in the community was there walking the boardwalk. Guys were at the street corner, you know, singing, watching all the girls go by, brother, if you've got a rich imagination, you know, and how the song goes. And we always went with 15 cents, because that's all we could afford, and we'd have a piece of pie and a cup of coffee before we go home. The pie was 10 cents, and the coffee was five. Stampede reminds us of that heritage and of those days gone by. This week we've been celebrating the 100th, 100th anniversary of the Stampede. In 1912, Guy, Guy Wiedek, an American trick roper, came to Calgary to launch something that would celebrate the Wild West and the ranching industry. He talked four cattlemen, Pat Burns, A. Cross, George Lane, and Archie McLean, commonly known as the Big Four, to give him $100,000 to run the event. Years later, in 1948, we discovered the White Stetson in Calgary, when Calgary became known as the Cowtown. Don McKay, without a doubt the most colorful mayor Calgary has ever had, but in 1948, he wasn't the mayor yet, he was an alderman, he became mayor in 1949. The Stampeders won their first Grey Cup in Toronto, and Don McKay took half the city to Toronto, and all the horses he could find, and on the day we celebrated the victory of the Grey Cup, they rode horses into the main entrance of the York, uh, Royal York Hotel in Toronto. The West had arrived. <laughs> I'm always amused when the Queen comes to the city and Prince Philip, the mayor of the day, always gives them a white Stetson and puts it on their, hand, on their heads. You know, whenever I see the Queen, when I see the Queen with that hat on, she looks about as comfortable as most modern-day preachers in a suit. Uh, she just doesn't look... Well, I've seen her a lot lately wearing hats. Heavens knows she's got lots of hats. And I'm still waiting for her to show up at a royal event one of these days with her white Stetson, but I don't think I'll hold my breath. As newcomers arrive, some tend to react negatively to our cultural reputation. Surely, they say, we've gone beyond that. Even our new premier wants this province to become more progressive, more liberalized. 
I always worry about what that means. I, I kind of think it means we want to legalize sin a little more. Uh, but that's what we want to do. These same people, I'm sure, would cringe if, they, if Wilf Carter could come up here. On, well, maybe they wouldn't come up here on stage and sing, We've had, we have beef and spuds and carrots, boys, that made a dandy stew, and all the chunks of turnips that never were cooked through. Doesn't, doesn't, write, doesn't match uh, uh, Verdi's requiem. I hope that our cultural heritage will not be diminished. We ought to be proud of the heritage because back in those days we had a biblical view, world view that has stood us well for all these many years. The second heritage is our national heritage. Both Canada and the United States, the greatest nations in the world in my view, were founded mainly by Western and Eastern Europeans seeking to pursue more than anything else three fundamental values, faith, family, and freedom. Unfortunately, all three of these are under attack in both countries these days. Let's look at each one very briefly. First of all, faith. Europe in those days before their coming to the New World was riddled with state churches. Now these state churches were established, they were operated, they were funded, and they were controlled by the government. God forbid that that should ever happen again. The government can barely run a post office. Can you imagine what in the world they would do if they tried to run the church? I always agree with Ronald Reagan when he once said the eight scariest words in the English language are these. I'm from the government. I'm here to help. <laughs> when the founding fathers of the United States wrote the Constitution, they wrote into the First Amendment to that Constitution that there should be separation of word, church and state, which means, literally, that the government of the United States should never have any kind of control of or influence over the church in that nation. Now, the new atheists these days, of course, take the view that if that is true, then it should also follow that the reverse is true, that the church and those that adhere to it should have no impact and no influence whatsoever over the government. Well, that's not what the founding fathers of the United States had in mind. Religious freedom is one of the most prized possessions we have, and we must protect it at all costs. Secondly, family. Healthy family life is an essential building block of any nation. When family life collapses, so does the nation. One of the major reasons for the fall of ancient Rome was the collapse of family life. If there's a lesson here, the Americans, and for that matter, we Canadians, had better learn it. The third of these was freedom. Freedom is one of the most precious gifts we have in Canada. Our forefathers struggled to attain it, and many of them died to preserve it. Of all of our freedoms, freedom of speech and freedom of religion are under the greatest attack. Let me talk about freedom of religion first of all. You know, there was a time in our heritage when the Christian church was admired even by non-Christians, where men of the cloth were respected for who they were, and church people were admired in the community. And people in the community, even if they were not church people, 
They lived by the standard of behavior that was set in the scriptures by the Ten, Com by the Ten Commandments. Or they tried to live by the standards set by the Ten Commandments. But all of that has changed. And so I asked this morning, why are people so upset with us these days? The new atheists used to disagree with us. Now they hate us. Why is that? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. One is that uh, when you go to church, or when you read the scriptures particularly, the scriptures tell us who we really are. And it's not pretty. When I get up in the morning and look in the mirror in my bathroom, I'm quite a mess. So I have one of two choices. I can either shave, shower, and shampoo, and splash some, some uh, aftershave lotion on, and dress myself, and coordinate myself, and with the help of my wife, and get out the door to face the world. That's one option. The other option is to take the hammer and smash the mirror. And many of the people these days, when they look into the scriptures and see what is expected of them, they want to destroy the messenger. And that's unfortunate. The second thing is that people today have carried this whole business of freedom way beyond that was ever intended. And the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, I don't think, has helped us a whole lot in this regard in Canada. There is not only the belief any longer that we, are, we ought to be free to do what we ought to do. Now we've gone to the next step and said we ought to be free to do what we want to do. And nobody, nobody has any right whatsoever, ever, to tell us how we ought to behave. That was never the intention. And then, when it comes to the freedom of speech, there is, of course, the tolerance crowd and the political correctness crowd. Don't you love them? This crowd is bullying their opponents into silence, and bit by bit, our freedom of expression is being eroded. You might well ask here today and say, well, what do you got against tolerance? Isn't tolerance a good thing? Well, of course tolerance is a good thing. That's what these people do. They take perfectly good words and they use them as a euphemism for the things they want to promote. And so what you get here with, from this tolerance crowd, and we ought to be tolerant of people. You know, I don't care who the person is. No, I don't care where they're from, what their ethnicity is, what their race is, what their religion is. Whatever it is, we ought to tolerate people. But I learned at university a long time ago that one of the healthy things is to, for people to disagree with each other and have interested, interesting and intellectual dialogue, even though you may disagree with one another. But these days, disagreement with anybody seems to be inappropriate. And so, the tolerance people, since they don't, some of them don't believe in God, uh, they don't have any, any standard of behavior, so they don't know the difference between right and wrong, so they tolerate wrong. They don't know any difference between good and evil, so they tolerate evil. They don't know the difference between justice and injustice, so they tolerate injustice. And, and as a result, the end product of all of this is that uh, nobody has anything, any right to tell me what to do. I have my truth, you have yours. You're welcome to yours, but don't interfere with mine. I have my morals, you have yours. 
Don't interfere with mine and I won't interfere with you. Everybody just live happily ever after. No wonder G.K. Chesterton said, tolerance is the virtue of those who don't believe in anything. And that's where we're at with many of the people today. The situation described in the Bible is rapidly coming true when it says everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. And another verse in Isaiah 5.20 said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. You know, Americans would do well, and Canadians too for that matter, to heed the warning of Abraham Lincoln when he said, America will never be destroyed from the outside. If we falter and lose our freedom, it will be because we destroy it ourselves. The third heritage is our family heritage. Earlier we read the passage of Timothy where Paul writes to Timothy about his heritage. If the Christian faith is to survive, as it did in Timothy's family, it must be passed on from one generation to the next in the home. That's the only place it's going to work. What heritage, what Christian heritage have you received from your family? You know, I talk to people all, all the time. I talked to some people last night whose family heritage is so, so sad that it's had its long-lasting impact on the two young lives that I spent time with last evening. But more importantly, what Christian heritage are we now shaping in our homes that we want to pass on to our children and to our grandchildren and to our great-grandchildren and to our church audience that's coming to us in the future? Oh, I know there are those who are absolutely appalled at the thought that parents should have the audacity to deliberately instill their values into their children. They call it brainwashing, our children. But wait a minute. If parents don't do it, if parents don't do it, who's going to do it? Well, I'll tell you who's going to do it. Hollywood and the movie industry, the internet, television, street kids and peers, schools, daycares, nannies. So, do you want to step back and turn over your children to all of these influences in the world and think that something good is going to come out of it? I think not. How best is a Christian heritage passed on to the next generation? Well, let me give you this caveat before I get into that. Because I know there are a lot of us here this morning, we've tried our best and, and still it didn't work. It's not easy passing our heritage, our Christian heritage, on to our children. There are no guarantees. I've known parents who have done everything right, yet it didn't work. The good news is that the writer to the Proverbs says, train up a child and when he, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Never be discouraged. Your prayers and work will not be in vain. Teaching values to children should begin at birth. The longer we wait, the harder it gets. And in order to do that, we have to establish healthy relationships with our children. You know, in a long life and in my career, I've discovered that it's a really hard thing to influence people who hate you. 
I've got a few people in my life, and I know this is hard to believe, but I've got a few people in my life who don't particularly like me. In fact, I can think of a few right now who deliberately hate me. And personally, I'm not all that bothered by that. But what does trouble me is that if, if I were in a position where I had to influence them, I wouldn't be able to do it. If I tried to influence those people, they'd tell me where to go in language so descriptive I'd look forward to the trip. <laughs> we need to communicate to our children the gospel lovingly, simply, clearly, and consistently. We need to pray for our children and grandchildren daily by name. You know, an image that is branded, that is branded on my mind of my own home which I will never forget, and the older I get, the more precious this image becomes. My father kneeling on one side of the bed, my mother on the other, morning and evening, door open so we could hear them, praying out loud for each of us by name, and I can't tell you the number of times I heard my name go up in prayer by my parents, my mother and my father. You know, that had a powerful impact in sharpening my conscience. What I regret to have to tell you today is that that conscience very often didn't keep me from sinning. But I want to tell you this, it sure kept me from enjoying myself while I was sinning. <laughs> You're laughing because you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> Model the Christian life at home and walk is more important than the talk. My parents left me nothing of earthly value but they gave me a spiritual heritage which is the most precious possession I own. And you know, the older I get, the closer I get to the exit gate of this life, the more precious, the more valuable that heritage is. The fourth and final heritage is the heritage of our church. The Christian heritage of the church goes back to the New Testament, especially the book of Acts. When Billy Graham moved onto the world scene in 1949 with his campaign in Los Angeles, thereafter he was invited in the early 50s to come to New York and conduct a campaign at Madison Square Gardens, which lasted for 16 weeks. He preached every night to packed audiences. And a reporter of the New York Times went to one of the clergymen of the bigger, sophisticated churches of New York and asked him this question. What do you make of Billy Graham's preaching? And that pastor said, well, quite frankly, it's obsolete. It does not speak to our culture. It's, um, it's, it's not what we need in this day and age. It's old-fashioned preaching. Uh, if the truth be known, he, set, he sets Christianity back at least 100 years. And so he ran the article, and after the article was published, he went to Dr. Graham and he said, what did you think of the article? And Mr. Graham said, well, quite frankly, I was disappointed. I was disappointed to hear him say that I set Christianity back 100 years when it's always been my intention to set it back 2,000 years <laughs> to the New Testament. The theological heritage of Center Street Church goes back to the Wesleyan movement of 18th century England. Let me say a word or two about the Wesleys, John and Charles. They were both graduates of Oxford University. They were both Anglican priests. 
But while they were at Oxford, uh, they had little Bible studies and they called them classes. You know, and, and at Center Street once in a while, we, we, we give the impression that we discovered small groups. Well, that's not the case. The Wesleys had small groups at Oxford University. They studied the Bible and they studied the Anglican Book of Common Prayer and they had certain strategic methods that they used for doing that. And so at Oxford University, they were, they were nicknamed the Methodists. Well, eventually they left the Anglican Church because their preaching was too orthodox and they had no buildings in which to preach, so they preached outside and they were itinerant preachers and they traveled by horseback all over, the, all over Britain and eventually they went to the United States, did some missionary work, turned out to be a disastrous trip. And when they got home, both of them had an experience that I want to describe a little later on in my message that changed their lives forever. But Francis Asbury was one of their followers and he came to the United States with the express purpose of spreading Methodism all over the United States and two young men in 1800 who were impacted by Francis Asbury's preaching well, it was a young fellow by the name of Jacob Albright and another one, Philip William Otterbein. German Methodists in Pennsylvania in 1800. They started a little church, both of them, and then a second, and then a third, and then a fourth, and eventually they each started a little denomination. Uh, one was called the Evangelical Church, and the other was called the United Brethren in Christ, and they carried on side by side, decade after decade after decade, for 140 years. And in 1946, they decided to get married. Talk about a long courtship. And they got married and the name became the Evangelical United Brethren Church. Now, all that doesn't really mean a whole lot to you and isn't significant, except to say that it was out of that denomination that Center Street Church emerged. In 1958-60, one of us came out of what is now Bridgeland Regional Church of Center. Isn't it interesting how God works? What goes around comes around. We came out of there, started Center Street Church. Now Center Street Church has gone down there to help them out and they become a regional church of Center Street Church. So you scratch my back, I scratch yours. You know, back there 50 years ago, if someone would have asked me, what do you think Center Street will be like in 50 years? <laughs> what you see here tonight and today, I couldn't have imagined. None of us could. And I just thank God today for what He has done among us. But that raises the question, I wonder what Center Street Church is going to be like in 50 years from now. I won't be here. If I am, it'll, I'll be 131 years old. But some of you may be here, and we're passing on to you a heritage that I'm going to talk about in just a few minutes that I hope will prevail and persist forever until Jesus comes. So I want to, I want to touch on three fundamental pillars of our faith and heritage as a church which hopefully will survive forever. You know, we're called evangelicals and the word evangelical comes from the German word evangelium. And the word evangelium in German means gospel. 
And what we're here to do is to preach the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to whoever ever will hear it. The first of the pillars that we hold dear is the Bible. The Bible is what, had to, what God had to say to the human race after the fall. It's not obsolete. It's not irrelevant. To today's culture, as many would believe, God and his word are timeless, they're ageless, they're eternal. There is no time with God. Eternity is his time. The Bible says with the Lord, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. And you know, we need to take the Bible seriously. What I worry about once in a while is that, and the Bible predicted this when it said, of the making of books there is no end. A lot of people say to me, why don't you write a book? And my response is, does the world really need another book? Everybody writes a book these days. I'm sure there are basements full of boxes of books that will never sell. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that if, if it is in addition to the Bible. But I fear too often we read other books, but we're not reading the Bible, which is the fundamental book and which is the which is the uh, the uh, f record of faith in life and, and conduct in our lives the second fundamental principle that we've built our church on is who Christ is there are at least three essential beliefs about Christ that are absolutely necessary and we can't neglect and the first one is a tough one it's this, Jesus was God. Make no mistake, he was God. If Jesus was not God, then he was no better off than you or I. If Jesus wasn't God, he's in the same boat you're in and I'm in. If Jesus wasn't God, there isn't a thing he can do for us. And what's even worse, given what he said, if Jesus is not God and he said what he said, the only alternative is that he was a liar or a lunatic, as C.S. Lewis points out. Let the scriptures speak for themselves when it comes to who Christ was. Matthew 1.23, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. John 10.30, I and my Father are one. John 14.9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Colossians 1.15, he, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is God come down and manifest among us in the flesh. And if he was not God, if Jesus was not God, then there is no hope for the human condition. And the church is little more than a religious rotary club. In fact, if Jesus was not God, I'd be strongly inclined to ask our board of governors to call a congregational meeting and we'll make a motion to sell this building and the one up in Center Street, put all our money together, divide it evenly among us, we'll all go to Hawaii and have a great bash and come home and eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. But Jesus was God. He was God. Secondly, Jesus is our Savior. God came to earth 
in Jesus Christ so that through his death and resurrection, the price of sin could be paid, making it, making it possible for whosoever will to choose to be reconciled and restored into a right relationship with God for all eternity. Again, let the scriptures speak for themselves. Matthew 1.21 And she, Mary, will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. 1 John, 1, 1 John 4.14 And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. And John 14.6 Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now I can hear voices all over the world shouting, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is the most controversial verse in the whole of Scripture. Every other religion is crying foul. Everybody else who wants to follow some other god is crying foul. Everybody looks at it and says, how narrow-minded can you get? Well, I'm all for broad-mindedness, but you know, there are times when God is narrow-minded. There were times when Jesus was narrow-minded. The Bible is narrow-minded. One time Jesus, in the, when he was giving the Sermon on the Mount in the seventh chapter of Matthew, he said, wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many there be who walk thereon. But narrow is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life eternal. And get this, few there be who find it. Do you know that there are going to be few in heaven? Few in heaven? You know, Jesus Christ's ministry was three years here on earth. And when he died and rose again and ascended into heaven, and his disciples came together on the day of Pentecost, there were 120 of them. 120 people were followers of Jesus after three years of ministry. My goodness, with that record, he wouldn't have made it onto the short list for senior pastor at Center Street Church. We'd have, we'd have gone for Peter. He preached a sermon on Pentecost Day, and 3,000 were added to the numbers of the church. That's the kind of results we we're looking for. But Jesus said, Few, few will find it. You know, I've been to a lot of funerals in my life. In fact, I have a friend who says if it weren't for funerals these days, we wouldn't have any social life at all. <laughs> but in all, at all the funerals that I have been, I cannot remember one, not one, where if it wasn't stated, it was at least implied that the deceased is now in heaven. And I say to myself, how do you square that with what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7? Jesus was unique. Otherwise, he's not to be, be worshipped. If he wasn't who he said he was, then why in the world would we worship somebody that lived 2,000 years ago and had long hair and wore a dress and sandals and, and told people all kinds of things that weren't true? Jesus is our Savior. And thirdly, and this is important, and one we don't hear much about anymore, you know what worries me a little bit about North America? 
We're so eager to have people accept Jesus as Savior. And man, that's good. And our churches in North America are loaded with people who've accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and then they go on and live their lives like they always did. I'm on my way to heaven. But Jesus is also Lord. And those two things aren't separate events. They occur simultaneously. When we accept Christ as Savior, he automatically becomes our Lord. And what is a Lord? A Lord is someone who has control over your life. This is why you should think carefully before becoming a Christian. Because there is a cost, a price to be paid for discipleship. Billy Graham often reminded his audiences that while salvation is free, the Christian life's going to cost you everything you've got. Your hopes, your dreams, your ambitions, your wealth, your friendships, your family, your time, and even your life. Ask St. Paul and some of the disciples what happened to them. I like the story of the rich young ruler because it's so illustrative of how Jesus deals with individuals. This young fellow, he was young, he was handsome, he was rich, came to Jesus and he said, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, well, keep the commandments. And then he said, which ones? And Jesus rattled off a few and we all know that none of us can keep the Ten Commandments except the Holy Spirit enable us to do it. But he said, and I think he was trying to be honest, all these I have kept from my youth. What lack I yet? And Jesus looked deep down into his heart. And in his heart he found something very interesting. And what he found was that there was something in this young man's life that he was not prepared to give up in order to put Christ's first place in his life. And so he said to him this, go home, sell everything you've got, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. And the young man's head fell, and he walked away sorrowful because he was very rich. Now, this story has nothing to do with riches. It could have been anything else. In his case, it happened to be riches. My question here to you and to me this morning, because I struggle with this, just as I'm sure you do, what is it? What is it that's in my heart that I may not be ready to surrender in order to give Christ first place in my heart? In John chapter 6, Jesus gave a tough, tough sermon to his followers about the cost of discipleship. And then we're told this, many of his disciples walked with him no more. In Luke 14, 26, and then he turned to his disciples and he said this, are you going to go away too? And Peter spoke up. You know, you've got to love him, don't you? <laughs> Peter spoke up and he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. In Luke 14, 26, notice what Jesus said. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Mm, them's hard words. 
He cannot. Not he might not. He cannot. You might say. Now, God may not take all of those things, but the question is, are you willing to let him have him? Do you still want to be a Christian? Given my age and my nearness to the exit, I can only tell you, folks, it's worth it. Even at that price, it's worth it to be a Christian. Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane left his disciples behind and he went a little further and he fell on a huge boulder. And there he prayed, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup full of everyone's sin. I don't want all this sin on me. If it be possible to let this cup, this cross, go away. But here's what's important. Then Jesus said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Let me ask you, have you had your Gethsemane? Have you been at that place where you could pray, Lord, take this away? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In 1992, I had cancer, colon cancer. And my doctor said to me, you have cancer, you need surgery, and you need, need it now. After the surgery, my surgeon said to Martha and me, well, Gordon, enjoy yourself. You've probably got five years. And I'll tell you, I had a bit of a Gethsemane where I prayed, oh, God, take this cancer from me. But I'll tell you the hardest prayer I've ever prayed in my whole life. My whole life is when I had to say, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And on the 13th of April of this year, I celebrated 20 years since my surgery. You had your Gethsemane. The last thing I want to talk about before I close is the church, the worldwide church and our church. The third fundamental pillar of, of our church. Christ and church are inextricably linked. You can't have one without the other. Oh, I hear people say every once in a while, I love Jesus with all of my heart, but I have no use for the church. What? The Bible says that the church is the bride of Christ. And one of these days he's coming back for the bride. That's like going to a wedding and saying to the groom, you're the most wonderful person in the world, but your wife, she's a mess. <laughs> the Bible speaks of the church as the bride. Christ is building his church. Matthew 16, 8. I will build my church. And one of these days, he's coming back for the church. And do you know what he's, what he's going to say to it? That we're the glorious church without spot or wrinkle washed in the blood of the Lamb. Jesus purchased his, the church with his blood. Acts 20, 28. 
shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his blood. Christ is the head of the church, and the church is the body of Christ. In Colossians 1.18 we read, and he is the head of the body, the church. That has tremendous implications, not only for the church worldwide, but for Center Street. You see, the senior pastor is not the head of Center Street Church, nor is the Board of Governors. Jesus Christ is the head of this church. And it behooves the leadership of this church to so align their priorities with the priorities of Jesus Christ that every decision we make is vetted through his priorities because if that's not what happens, I fear for our future. I'm going to pray a prayer. But let me say this. If you haven't had the experience that John Wesley had, or if you haven't had your Gethsemane, I'd really encourage you this morning to do that. On the screen, you're going to see the experience John Wesley had in 1738 when he was 34 years of age. On May the 24th, he was invited to go to a little meeting at Alderside Gate in, in, London, Ontario, in London, England. And he didn't want to go very badly, but he went. And that night he had an experience, and you can read the experience on the screen. My question to you today, have you had that experience? If not, you can have it today. Let's pray. Our Father, bless us this morning. Help us, O oh God, that we might be willing to surrender ourselves, body, soul, and spirit, to you for all eternity. Help those who are struggling this morning and are trying to make decisions for you. Help them to do it. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go and